I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Terminator Genesis, did they, I don't remember, did they have a scene where an atomic bomb went off? Um, Is it like a, I think it's there a, are shots of it. There's, every Terminator movie has, has a shot of an atomic shot. bomb going off, yeah. but it's usually not in the present day of the story. Right. The uh, best use of uh, the um, Sarah Connor Terminator 2 sequence I've ever seen was in an episode of Bob's Burgers, and it was, what's the name of the oldest daughter on there? Um, it's the thing about her having to shave her legs and she's kind of horrified by it. And it's the atomic fire burning all the hair off of her legs. <laughs> but it's the same thing with her like against the <laughs> fence. And it's so well done. <laughs> and they managed to kind of make it horrifying. I saw T2 as a third grader. And that scene of Sarah Connor melting away just really... It's I think I might have said this on the, on the Arnold episode. That that was like a, a terrifying image for me for like I want to say like nine years because I, it came back when in eighth grade we had to read on the beach oh yeah mm. in in English class or in reading seminar they decided that for a bunch of 13 year olds on the beach was a good liturgy you know uh, literacy <laughs> super depressing you know builder and it was they're like oh it's dealing with modern you know it's it's looking at symbols for modern you know problems and contemporary things I was like yeah meanwhile you've now terrified us all because it's also the time when like the history channel and the learning channel and discovery channel were doing all kinds of documentaries Documentaries on the the lost bombs from you know the lost nukes from the fall of the Soviet Union. Oh, geez. they're like yes, they're floating around somewhere in Kazakhstan. Nothing you can do, kids. Good luck. That's the thing with on the beach too. Is that on the beach is not about people trying to save the world. They briefly try to save the world, and the ultimate end is that we're all doomed. So it's about us becoming comfortable with that and trying to figure out what we're going to do with like the last three months of our lives. Fuck. You haven't, like you haven't seen the movie or read the book? I have not seen the movie because mm. we had to read the book and I was so upset by it that I just, I refused to watch it. No, it, we, there, you know, everyone, there's usually a dystopian free space when you're in English class and you're going to do, you know, you're going to do Fahrenheit 451, you're going to do 1984, maybe you'll do Brave New World, that'll get on there. Our dystopian novel free space was Ayn Rand's Anthem, so. Oh, good that's lord. What, that's the one that we, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that space now ha- occupies a much bigger part of English curricula in a lot of places because- teachers and and people are seeing that youths read it and there's a lot more teen dystopic future um books that are now out there and when we have a problem of you know as a as a teacher of kids just really literally not reading the book like not even looking at spark notes just being like i'm right like expressing pride and having never read a novel kind of thing these books are things that that young people will consume yeah, and it's almost as if it was written for them. And it's almost as if the idea of apocalypticism as a, as a narrative function is something that appeals mainly to adolescents. Huh. I, I, I'm just going to say, I love apocalyptic novels. And I think what do they do, ultimately? I love things that are adolescent. However, I don't want my worldview about what's possible to be defined by 
what a, the imagination of a 14-year-old I don't prefers. think that apocalyptic stories are inherently juvenile or inherently adolescent. I think so, because they come from the adolescence of our species. No, 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 no. I, I disagree. I think what they do is they give you a slate to take us. It's essentially a fish-out-of-water story for an entire species of people. Fish-out-of-water is adolescence, though. That That's the most, that in a human existence, that is the defining part of adolescence. But, I mean, the, the basic that idea and invincibility of, and yeah. sex. Uh, yeah. I mean, taking somebody, uh, taking humanity and actually talking about, it's the same thing with, with Star Trek. Is you, Instead of putting us in a utopia, you put us in a dystopia mm-hmm. that you say, okay, what are we inherently? There's when a you difference strip away between a lo- dystopia and apocalypticism, though. And that's the big, that's the big difference. I think it's a sliding scale. I, I think that apocalyptic, uh, yes, dystopia is like Soviet Russia is dystopia, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that was a, a dystopia that was realized, but it wasn't an apocalypse. What it, I'm talking about is- Is Lois Lowry uh, giver? That's dystopic. That's not it's apocalyptic. Dystopic. It's not apocalyptic. I'm just saying that apocalypticism as a thing, I think, is a dehumanizing conception of humanity. It is a it is one really? where we it is one where we effectively to construct a, a scenario in which we can have emotional connections. Um, we have to decide that it's better off if 95 percent of people die. I, I think right there um, is the problem. And I have a problem with that sort of thing, too, which is the idea that uh, an apocalypse is aspirational. That stuff I totally agree with. I'm on board for not treating it as aspirational. I don't even care if it's aspirational. I don't want that to be the popular conception of what the future is like, which is what it is. And, and I agree and maybe with that, you. And maybe that's separate. That's my my yeah. feeling about about what I prefer is separate from why I think that it's prevalent. But I think that we've all, we've just attuned ourselves to the idea that the only vision of the future we can have is one that's like that, and we're feeding it over and over again. But I'd say the 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 key word there is only. I, I don't mm. think it should be the only vision of the future. And I, I said this too, so that I don't either. think that the only sort of any kind of story should be dark. And I think there should be dark stories. There should be stories about apocalyptic futures. But it shouldn't be the only future that we're capable of visualizing or creating. I, it's it's not as if it isn't. The, it isn't possible. It's just the one we prefer. Right now. Yeah. We go through waves. Um, we had apocalypse stuff in the 1970s as well. And I think that when you have a lot of something, there's a lot of good things and, and a then, lot of bad and things. And then Reagan came back and brought back our optimism about the future. <laughs> I'd say a little bit of Reagan because it was mostly just kind of pretending that the house wasn't on fire kind of stuff. But I think also- it was mo- And Pat Robertson. <laughs> no, Pat Robertson. <laughs> but I think it was a lot of it too is things like, say, Star Wars. Sure. That that you look at sort of dystopia stuff, even in the present day, you don't have to go to into the future to do it. Like Serpico. Serpico was like, look how mm. shitty the present is. Mm. That the very structures that we think are there to protect us and keep us safe are corrupt and horrible. And this regular person trying to stick up to it is essentially going to end up in the exact same place that Charlton Heston was at the end of Soylent Green. Mm. I, I want to take you up on your dehumanizing claim, Casey, because really... That was one that never occurred to me. It always seems um, to be incredibly self-centered because when people yeah. who are interested in apocalyptica generally um, are, are are visualizing themselves as one of the remaining people, as possibly even the hero. I And it disturbs actually, it disturbs Sam when I'm like, yeah, whatever, if there's a huge thing. Like I'm in the 78% of people that are croaked, right? Yeah. Like. Okay, I have an asthma attack. My glasses are broken. I'm dead. Fucking leave me. Like, <laughs> like I'm no good. <laughs> it's clear that we just have to have the apocalyptic literature, the apocalyptic genre p- panel 
at some point in time. We're going to have to and, eventually. And, and we're going to have to have Sam on it, too, because I feel like... I don't think Sam wants he's to be gonna on be it. Able he hates to, it. No, that's why. he. I, I mean, I don't I don't dislike it as much. I can enjoy playing Fallout. He will just not play Fallout. Actually, you know? this is kind of an interesting thing, because I think Sam has sort of pulled himself a little bit out of that and is willing to dip his toe into a little bit more. It took adventure time to do that. It took yeah. it being oh. <laughs> made of bubble gum, literally <laughs> things made of candy, to tempt him out of his uh, apocalyptic free diet. Yeah. But I think hmm. the thing with, with Sam is that I think he doesn't like the idea of, of a story taking place in a world that doesn't have a future. He doesn't want to have a story where it feels like there's an overarching sense of nihilism. I think that's the problem based on discussions I've had with him about this very topic. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, with apocalypse stuff, I have talked to him about an apocalypse panel, but I think the main reason Sam probably doesn't want to be on it is that it's it's a raw nerve, that genre with him. And you know, my but hey, gold, gold. That would be gold. It's you know, it's gold. But I don't want to to mine that gold him. over on the on I the altar of somebody's him. feelings. <laughs> I wouldn't pressure him. I would ask him, but I wouldn't like you know. I wouldn't try to rub his nose, and I wouldn't try to grind it down. I, I, too I gotta much. live with him, guys. You know, I, I don't want like this like fetal position Sam for the next like three weeks <laughs> following the. Uh... I think fetal position Sam is actually one of the variants of his action figure. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is we, we had to take a two-year break from uh, watching Battlestar Galactica until we were able to come back to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, Battlestar oh. Galactica is one of those shows that, and I think Walking Dead does this a lot, too, because Battlestar Galactica is a post-apocalyptic show. Mm-hmm. And I think Wait, it's- spoilers? Are we allowed to do spoilers mm-hmm. here? Well, this, it's the it premise of the show. Pre-apocalyptic? <laughs> yes. It, if you haven't watched Battlestar Galactica, fuck you, watch the show. But, I mean, it is essentially a show about genocide. It's about people yes. fleeing genocide, and their entire world is gone, and these people who thought they were only going to be on this cruise ship or this mining ship for a couple months or a couple days- that's your house now yeah. because your old house is irradiated and everything there is dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's apocalyptic in the same way that Walking Dead is. And I think that uh, – and I say this as I'm a big fan of the Walking Dead comic and a big fan of the Walking Dead show. But my advice to anyone consuming that sort of stuff is watch only a limited amount of it in one sitting. That with the comic or the TV show of Walking Dead, watch a season or maybe – Three or four trade paperbacks in a row. Season total. does not feel like limited in one sitting. If you can watch a season in one sitting, I think that's a full on binge. It's I mean, a binge. I've gone on Netflix binges. I get that, but but that's man, Mike. If that's your idea of a limited, <laughs> it is like, just a what? sitting. It's a serving. It's a healthy serving. I'm just saying in, in a in a in a cycle, and then in sure. between these cycles, sure. give yourself like four to five months. Hmm. Don't don't go right back into it after a couple of days. Give yourself enough time to remember that birds are singing and flowers are growing outside. Actually, I have a very weird experience regarding exactly what you said. Give yourself a minute to remind that birds are singing and flowers are blooming outside. And that is actually at age 16 when um, I visited Theresienstadt in the Czech Republic oh, as part of the um, as part of the. This must have been post-Berlin, post-Curtain. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as part of a, a, a... I am Soviet exchange student. <laughs> it's not an exchange student. Um, in the Jewish Reform Youth Movement, um, it's very common to send kids on a trip to Israel, um, helps reaffirm their faith and connection to their people, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And this one, this one in particular starts out in Czech Republic, and we look at all the Judaica that was there, and then we adopt 
the name of someone who perished in the Holocaust and Mm -hmm. we symbolically immigrate them to Israel, right? So we like take their passport and it's all, you know, immersive experience, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we had to, we we got to visit Theresen. And um, the thing is that when you're 16, you've seen footage of concentration camps Mm -hmm. and of ghetto villages and everything. And it's all in black and white, Mm -hmm. right? And it's all with emaciated people. Well, you know what? The people of Terezin were kicked out and, you know, 1948 comes along. They're like, can I have my fucking home back? Can we Mm -hmm. like start rebuilding our town again? It's a functioning town. Yes, it has a a living museum um, with the crematoria and it has a remembrance to, you know, what had happened there, but it's a town. And it was the eeriest feeling because in the little town like square, there's a little uh, like fountain with a ring of red tulips and the tulips were so fucking red hmm. and the sky was so blue and the clouds were so white and fluffy. And there was like, literally a kid on his bicycle, like a three wheel bicycle with uh, with one of those big six foot flags on the top. That's like, boy, you know, with this <laughs> yellow flag. Right. <laughs> And like I, I can see it now. This is this is half my life ago, right? Mm. I'm I'm nearly 34 years old. I was 16, and I can see it so that's amazing. Potently red tulips, blue skies, oh. ding 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 of a bike and a yellow flag on it, and it was eerie mm. because you just it's you don't think of it like that. Mm. Yeah, that it, you don't. It, I don't know. I guess that we get into this mindset sometimes, and fiction probably doesn't help this. That it's like the dark side cave on Dagobah. That mm-hmm. if something horrible mm-hmm. happens somewhere, that it's just cursed with a horrible thing forever. But the truth is, looking at the entire you know history of the human species, there would be no place on Earth that wouldn't be consumed with the dark side of the force. Mm-hmm. Because somebody has been murdered or died or some oppression or genocide or something has happened at every single part of every part of the globe. There's been right. a murder there. There's been something. Because you know what? There were people there. And... Um, I don't like to think that something is irrevocably scarred by something and that it's impossible to heal. And that's kind of getting back into that apocalyptic thing that it's kind of weird to have a discussion about Sam's feelings about something without Sam here. But this is why I went with this, my feelings, Mike. Yeah. It's the idea that... Just, the, the name of this point five episode is A Discussion About Sam's Feelings. <laughs> and the... Uh, it's the same thing that I really kind of like in Fallout 4 with a lot of the, the stuff that we're building and the settlement <laughs> stuff. Sam's peeking in on us now. Thank you, Sam. Five feet away. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You could probably flip flip a switch and hear everything we're saying, right? So, <laughs> thank you. He's not going to flip a switch. He's going to flip the table. And yeah. roar! But a thing I like about the settlement building in that game is that you, by building something out of rubble, and building something viable, you are essentially creating this world where there is a future now. Right. That it's like there are a oh, bunch that's of what, that's what Robot Sean says to you all the time. Yeah. Ro- I don't know. You probably haven't got. I haven't gotten to that point yet. Oh, but so uh, I just fucked it up, didn't I? It's okay. It's a fine. I don't care about thanks, spoilers. Thanks, mom. Thank yeah. you for. I, he says something like, "I'm so glad that you built a place where now these people can live and be safe." Yeah. And you're like coming from the, your robot child. Yeah. Really I, there's so much cool stuff in that game in terms of. I actually. I, I think I just saw a little bit of you die in there because I ruined the, in the it's institute okay, part. It's okay. It's okay. It doesn't really bother me that much. But the um, the thing that I really like is that, uh, and I've heard a number of people talk about this. What separates this from a lot of earlier Fallout games, like Fallout Three, Fallout New Vegas, is that in all those games you are essentially an interloper. Mm-hmm. That you are somebody that goes out 
into the world as an interruption of the normal causes and effects. That you're basically there, you're shaping the world, but you're not really a part of it because you're just there to sort of interrupt other people's plans, that you make somebody's life better, you make somebody's life worse, you kill a bunch of guys, you stop a bunch of people from doing this, or you help a bunch of people to do that. And you have a house, so to speak, but you don't really even decorate that. It's not a place you go. It's essentially just a large box that you throw stuff in that are too heavy for you to carry. <laughs> and then sleep in every now and then. You sleep in it it's every now and then. It's a hotel room, basically. It is. is. It's, a, it's essentially a hotel room because you didn't even put the furniture down. It's just sort of like, even if you decorate it, you're essentially, you pay some money and then it looks exactly like a default thing. Right. But in this one, you're building all this stuff to the point that you have a sense of ownership, like of permanent ownership of this location. Uh, I mean, a real sense of emotional ownership. No, and the fact you put your personality into it, too, because it's not just about the materials that you've used, but also presumably sometimes uh, the the companions that you keep and that you choose to send there. And right, then you have settlers there. there. You have a sense of responsibility yeah. towards to protecting and making sure they have clean water and you make sure that they have access to food right. and that the place is protected and the place that you go off and adventuring. And there was Quality a- single-payer health care. Yes. <laughs> it, <laughs> they still- That's the version of post-apocalyptica? Well, well, they're they're irradiated as all shit still. Um, but I think th- you. I think after two hundred years, everyone who's alive has a nominal uh, has a nominal immunity, natural immunity to ra- to radioactivity. I'm guessing. But what I what I really enjoy about it is that I have a real sense of stakes, and I feel like I have a home in that world in a way that I don't in these other games because I built this house, I maintain this place, and I spend a lot of time there. That I'm always tweaking something and sometimes my goal to going out and adventuring is not I need money so I can make my gun better but sometimes it is mm-hmm. but sometimes it's like I'm working on this fence and I really want to get this building going I really want to get these crops going I want to get the score up so I can get more settlers in and we can do that thing that I've been building towards for a long time or I want to upgrade this uh, trader's shop up to like the third level or mm-hmm. whatever so I can get more money into the community and make everyone happier and it's like, I feel that in a way that I didn't for those other games, because essentially in like Fallout 3, when I go to Megaton, I leave my apartment and there's a bunch of people walking around. And then I realize that there's no place that I go in Megaton except for my apartment and the front door of the settlement. I don't go anywhere else. I don't talk to anybody. Maybe I go to Moira Brown's shop and buy some stuff and sell some stuff. But other than that, I don't interact with these people. They're not really my neighbors. Yeah. But in Fallout 4, not am I building that, but when I leave, and this is something that was brought to my attention by, I don't know his name, but he's a vlogger, saying that when I leave my settlement, I'm not just you know going on adventuring and stuff like that. I'm going on expeditions now because after I finish, I'm going to come back and I hang out at my settlement for a couple hours of gameplay because I'm emotionally unwinding from all that shit I just did, all the exciting stuff, and making sure that everything's okay. So it's I have a completely different relationship to that world than I did to previous games. It's true. And because of that, it feels like it's a world that has a future. Hmm. And it feels hmm. like it's a world that can get better. And it doesn't have a sense of nihilism that a lot of games can't help but have it yeah, yeah. if they take place after the end of the world. Agreed. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
my life fades. The vision dims. All that remains are memories. I remember a time of chaos. Ruined dreams. This wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior. The man we called Max. To understand who he was, you have to go back to another time. When the world was powered by the black fuel and the desert sprouted great cities of pipe and steel. Gone now, swept away. For reasons long forgotten, two mighty warrior tribes went to war and touched off a blaze which engulfed them all. Without fuel, they were nothing. They'd built a house of straw. The thundering machine sputtered and stopped. Their leaders talked and talked and talked. But nothing could stem the avalanche. Their world crumbled. The cities exploded. A whirlwind of looting. A firestorm of fear. Men began to feed on men. On the roads, it was a white line nightmare. Only those mobile enough to scavenge, brutal enough to pillage, would survive. The gangs took over the highways, ready to wage war for a tank of juice. And in this maelstrom of decay, ordinary men were battered and smashed. Men like Max. The warrior Max. In the roar of an engine, he lost everything. And became a shell of a man. A burnt out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons of his past. A man who wandered out into the wasteland. And it was here in this blighted place that he learned to live again.